So hello and welcome to Unparliamentary Language, a podcast that doesn't have a joke this week because it's our annual review of our predictions. Um, yeah, sorry, there's nothing funny to say. It's just got to check how well we did. So I think you've written up, you've done your usual job, Rob, of going through all the predictions that we made in our last episode, writing them up. Uh, so that we can go through and see how we did, like a scorecard for our guesses for the year. And we touched on it a bit in our Patreon bonus episode we've just recorded, where things are quite different than they were last year, which we kind of predicted a bit, I think. But let's get into that, uh, starting with the big one, COVID. Um, so what did we say about that, Rob? Yeah, so, I mean, last year we were saying that we thought it would be, you know, that we'd move from pandemic to endemic. We wouldn't have any more lockdowns. Pretty much the government said as much last year, and that's very much been the case. I don't think we've even had any inkling of one being announced. Yeah, so so that's a relief. Um, the only other thing we did speculate on is we, there might be some more things like work from home mandates or mask wearing, etc. And all I think, well, the government certainly has sort of put forward the idea that it's looking for the exact opposite in this year, hasn't it? With uh, you know people like Jacob Rees-Mogg going to civil servants' offices and leaving was it a post-it note or threatening letters on the doors saying "I visited, nobody was here," um, which got uh, you know which continued the government's ongoing battle with the civil service. I think which was a little odd in perspective. Um, and yeah, and the, and the final thing that we sort of predicted was that we'd be uh, yeah moving into the realm where COVID boosters would be more of a regular thing. Now, uh, me personally, because of because uh, of how I am, my medical situation, nothing too serious, but um, just because I've got an underlying health condition, I fall into the bracket where I was eligible for a COVID booster this year, but I'd also be eligible because of where I work in the NHS. And I think that's where I've seen most of the COVID regulations stay, particularly over winter pressures this year and just the winter we've asked people that you know if you've got any you know if, if you come in with a cold or a cough please wear a mask because even if it's not covid it might be flu and we also don't want to spread that so there have been some good lessons to uh, learn over there and uh, yeah equally with the with the booster jabs and everything getting your flu jab um, they say get your covid jab at the same time that's been advice at my workplace anyway I've been really keen to stress that that's what you should do. Um, which, yeah, I shan't complain about it at all. It's very sensible advice to me. Yeah, I think maybe I can offer a slightly different perspective. I mean, let, let's first just tick through the list. Going from pandemic to endemic, I think, was an easy prediction for us to make. But, I mean, it, it seems that way. Uh, from a personal point of view, just after we'd recorded and edited the last episode, I managed to get COVID again. Um, I had what, to me, was a very grotty cold. Uh, I didn't have the loss of smell that I had the first time I had COVID a few years back. Uh, and But I was like, oh... Mm, I've got to go to a work thing. I should check because I, I was just at home. I wasn't going anywhere. So I was just like, I'll check. Oh, and it was the strongest I'd ever seen a lateral flow come up. I must have got it at peak, like shed, but I was, I was at home. I'd been at home for several days. So, you know, I hadn't been going anywhere spreading this cold because I'm like, well, I don't need to do anything. I feel a bit grotty. But actually, I think a day later, I felt fine. And I was just waiting for that negative test to come up so that I could go back outside. Um, unfortunately, my partner didn't get it. Um, but they had some work things to do. So we basically, like now we live in a house and not a flat. It's a bit easier for us to to socially distance inside the house um, while that was going on. Um, but yeah, it was that it, it felt like, like you say, like having the flu, like I wouldn't go to work if I had the flu. Um, I wouldn't go to try. I would try not to go to work with a big grotty cold. I know obviously not everyone is in that position. I'm fortunate I can work from home most days of the week. So it's not a big problem if I'm like, oh, I'm not coming in this week because I've got a horrible cold. I did it earlier in the year as well when I, I was like feeling awful. I didn't go into work that week. But I was working from home the whole time. I actually worked all the way through COVID because I never had a day where I felt so bad. 
that I couldn't work remotely. And, you know, I think that's one of the things where there's not my employer, but I know there are other employers being like, oh, you have to come into the office and stuff. And it's like, well, you know, if you have a job that doesn't require you to be somewhere and you can do it remotely, maybe you don't have to come in every day. This kind of, I think one thing we haven't seen and we didn't talk about really is how work from home stuff would kind of balance. Cause I feel like there are a lot of companies and institutions who haven't quite understood that how great it can be to have remote workers. Um, I'm fortunate that I work in a, a role that while it's not technically remote, I can be remote if need be. Um, and it's like a bit more of a sensible split between office and, and from home. Um, yeah, I, I think like there were some lessons learned, but I feel like if you're in the NHS, you feel like the lessons have been learned and outside I feel like there's a lot less like you don't see people where, you know, uh, so one thing people used to comment about was people from uh, Asian countries wearing masks when they're on trains. And like we talked about this at the start of the pandemic, people didn't understand that was like to protect you from the fact they have a cold or something. And this kind of came up. I, I don't know if it was culturally there before, but it definitely happened with the original SARS uh, epidemic that happened back in uh, the early 2000s. And that stuck as like a cultural thing. Whereas over here, we were kind of like, oh, what's going on? Why are they wearing masks? Are they worried about me? And it's like, no, it's the other way around. They're trying to help. And obviously then we all had masks masks for covid and it does seem very much like the population as a whole has just forgotten that masks are useful um <laughs> like I, I i've transitioned this year from being public sector to private sector so i was working in a hospital and i still get some emails from that i still do some stuff to do with the uni but outside of work and so yeah i'd still get those emails being like oh no now we're back to wearing masks in the hospital for, for a few weeks because like numbers are up but outside of that it seems like everyone has forgotten it was a thing which is kind of strange um like you said yeah so going from pandemic to endemic tick life with covid no more lockdowns tick um in the UK, at least. Outside of the UK, I think there's still been lockdowns. Germany and stuff has been a bit more conservative with how they come out of the lockdown. And then these kind of work from home mandates and mask wearing, like I say, I, it just hasn't happened on a, on a national state scale in the UK. Um, it's happening in other countries a bit still. Um, but then like some countries, like for example, Japan has only really just opened up its borders to international travel again, if you weren't living in Japan. So it's very different. But with within our specific UK predictions, we were pretty correct with that, I think, other than there just hasn't been any national mandates. But it is weird. Like, I haven't had a booster now. And if I'd been working still with the NHS all the time, I probably would have had a fourth gap. Um, but also, I'm, I, you know, I don't need it. Like I say, I had COVID the other day and it was fine for me um, because I've had three jabs and I don't like I, I'd probably. Well, I mean, I don't know it, how how quickly that um, drops off you know your your ability to deal with it so maybe it will become a thing next year where they start saying oh you could have another booster now if you're the general population but no one's telling me to have a booster i can't just go get one so <laughs> if someone if someone said to me you should have a booster i would definitely go take take them up on that but at the moment it doesn't seem to be a problem for someone like me so yeah it's it is interesting how it's quite different depending on where you work and stuff and i think we're now in that period where like your reactions to covid have become very personal and not um there's no longer because there's no longer like a national mandate on anything it's kind of everyone's experience is very different. I think we talked about that a bit before where like I was working in a hospital during quite a bit of COVID. So I was going in when loads of my friends were just stuck at home the whole time. And now now I've almost done the inverse. I'm working from home much more often. And then a lot of my friends who are in offices. They're back in the office. So it's it's kind of weird and a bit inverted. But yeah, I guess I don't have any more points to add on that, really. No, I don't. And I mean, usually the way these episodes work is that we have a look back and then we have a look forward for our predictions for next year. I don't know if I really want to do a prediction for COVID next year. Do you? Like, I, I don't want to say that it's over or done, but it just, it's not been part of the news agenda like it was the previous year, was it? Or like the previous two years, for example. Essentially making a prediction here that we're not going to talk about COVID much. Like, 
I, I could see there being like a, you know, there's ongoing stuff uh, where people are investigating like the PPE contracts and stuff like that. That kind of stuff may come up. But COVID itself and mandate, it does seem like unless there is a new variant that's completely different, I think we've got to that point where people expected where it starts to become endemic because in general, not always true, but in general, these kind of viruses will evolve to be less lethal so they can spread. Like They just want to spread their genes, right? So they want to be in as many people as possible. And if they're killing everyone off, then they don't spread as well. I mean, it's not strictly true in some some cases. Like we discussed that previously, I think, in an episode. But yeah, just it seems like that has happened. And we have decent vaccines and protections against it in most cases. So it should hopefully just fade away as a story. And it's only, if, like, you know, there's other stuff going on, you know, flu, flu numbers are up because everyone's meeting up again and stuff like that. So I think it kind of will settle into one of those things where we know it's there, but in most cases it's not a killer. Uh, and therefore it's, it's ends up being kind of fine, I guess, like, you know, flu is bad for old people too. Like before, before we had a vaccine, it was a real problem. Um, and now it's mitigated to an extent. So I guess if we're not doing predictions of that, we should move on to the next topic. So Brexit, what did we predict there, Rob? Yeah, so again, this is another one where we predicted that we would talk about it less, that it would become less and less of an issue as time gone by. I mean, listening to the last one, we said that, you know, Brexit was the reason that we formed this podcast in the first place. And that's true. If you think of all the political turmoil that was happening under Theresa May, goodness, nearly three prime ministers ago now, um, <laughs> there was... Yeah, there was a lot to be said. And uh, yeah, we said <laughs> we would talk about it less. Um, also, it was fascinating listening to last year's one because we said that Brexit might feature into the cost of living crisis. And I feel that that's been a very sort of winter to like summer thing of 2023. That was when it was mentioned. The fact we were mentioning it all the way back in January last year suggests that either we were ahead of the curve or maybe that saying was out there and we were just borrowing it. But um, we thought Brexit might play into that with increased food prices, etc. Um, as it, as it has been, I think that once again we, we mentioned last year how hard it was to pinpoint where exactly something is Brexit or if it's just the economy. And I think this year was, you know, if you're looking at inflation and the cost of living, um, it is hard to compare us to other places in Europe when the war in Ukraine is also affecting stuff like food prices and everybody is suffering to an extent. So I think because those big international incidents have happened and it is hard to compare us with the rest of Europe, um, it means that we are talking about Brexit less. And I'd say particularly with the prime ministers that we've had since Boris has gone, although both Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss mentioned it, I don't think they have been quite so culture warsy or quite like having that dividing line between them and Labour, it does seem to be quite a standard issue now. Uh, the one thing that, you know, the other thing that we predicted was saying that Labour would continue to ignore it. Got that slightly wrong. Um, I had to do my research on, on this just to make sure. But yeah, Keir Starmer did a speech in July of this year, essentially saying that, you know, Brexit has happened and the Labour Party support Brexit, but we think that it has been mismanaged to this point and here is how we would do it better. And I think maybe we are at the stage of Brexit now where if you are a Brexiteer or a Remainer, both of them say that it has been, you know, if you saw opportunities or you saw failures in, you know, the, the scheme, what benefits Britain has got out of it, what tangible benefits we've got out of it now, they are hard to see. And even those on the right are saying that Brexit has been mismanaged. Um, of course, it's the, the decision that they've got to make now is that those on the right say, look, you you know, Brexit has failed because we haven't gone hard or fast enough. We need to go super hard and cut all our ties with Europe. Whereas those on the more Remainy side would either say, hey, we need to rejoin or might say it, it's failed because we haven't had a dialogue with Europe or we've been more, um, 
we've been at loggerheads with them. And I think that's something that even Rishi Sunak has come out and said now. He says, yeah, he wants to build more of a partnership with Europe rather than seeing it as them as a competitor. So, um, yeah, some really interesting points on Brexit. It's hard to get it. Yeah, I, th- I think we were mostly right with some of those. Um, as with all our it's hard to be 100% right with anything, particularly something as vague and widespreading as, uh, as Brexit. I mean, I just, just to tick through the list, we will talk about it less accurate. Uh, as a country and as a podcast, uh, we might have to deal with this cost of living crisis due to Brexit. Well, like like you say, it got rolled into things, but it did get mentioned. I, I don't think, like you say, it was front and centre, but at least in the more left-leaning papers, you would see Brexit got, got brought up quite a bit. And I think if you look at kind of The Economist's coverage of cost of living crisis and war in Ukraine... They talked a lot about how, as a country, we were less able to deal with shocks to our economy because of Brexit, because we are dealing with this essentially on our own and we have other problems due to Brexit. And it kind of like it's there as an exacerbator and it's really hard to pick this apart. Like we thought, I think when Brexit was going through before we had COVID, we were like, oh, it's going to be really easy to pick apart that the economy is going to do worse with Brexit. Um, and then, you know, people on the right were saying, no, that's not going to be true. It's like Brexit's going to be great. And I think like you say, it's been mismanaged, et cetera. But we've had a number of large outside external shocks to the economy that have basically made it really hard to pick all this data apart. And I'm sure it will make multiple interesting uh, thesis topics for PhD students in economics uh, for years to come. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, we, we didn't see a war in Ukraine coming. Shock horror, like we didn't make any predictions about it, obviously. But like, you know, w- with that, that was a sudden change. Uh, kind of interesting how the effects have fed through a bit, because I think uh, one of our friends has recently been going into pubs in central London quite regularly and is like, takes a photo of a pint and says, guess what the price is? It was like, it was weird that we had the war in Ukraine. We had all these problems with like grain supplies and stuff. And because of how things take a while to kind of trickle through, it wasn't until I went to a pub in London in September that suddenly pints were like seven pounds. And I was like, what? Like, because the joke always used to be when you're elsewhere in the country, oh, pint in London costs five pounds. There's been like inflation and stuff, but this was like a sudden jump, you know, as they had to cover, pubs are covering higher energy prices. They're covering like the beer prices will go up as well. I mean, because I think duty on beer didn't change. That was like a big thing Boris and Sunak, like that photo, I think we used possibly even as one of our episode pictures last season. So it wasn't the alcohol duty changing. It's the fact that the price of beer and stuff has got, like you'll notice cider hasn't got as, as much more expensive because it doesn't require grain uh, in its production. So it's kind of interesting to see where things have come in and people have felt the pinch. You know, Food food prices have gone up overall, but it's kind of been much more staggered. So it has been bad around Christmas time for all the reasons that's a hard time for people uh, anyway. But like kind of throughout the year, prices have kind of slowly gone up in some areas and in others they've lurched up, which has been interesting. But we didn't predict any of that. It's just just to put it out there. <laughs> um, yeah. And I guess, yeah, it get mentioned in those areas. So I guess, do we want to, are we going to do predictions now for each section? Is that the easiest way to do it? Yeah, I think that's how we've done it in the past. Then. Yeah. So any Brexit predictions? Um, I, I mean, I think it's fair to say we'll probably talk about it less again, unless I, I can't foresee off the top of my head a big thing on the horizon related to Brexit like there are ongoing squabbles about various legal things to do with Brexit but because we have we've left now um you know I I think it is going to slowly fade away and only kind of be there as a list of contributing factors to things that are bad yeah I think the only thing that might make it more into the news is if the conservatives decide they want to start talking about it more so if, if Rishi Sunak sees that Brexit is a boost to him 
or thinks that can give him a bit of a boost in the poll numbers, he might do that. And that's what that's what Boris Johnson used to do when he was in charge. He might bring it up or, you know, it was his favourite thing to say during Prime Minister's questions to Keir Starmer is like, that man from London was a Remainer and he's still trying to pull the wool over your eyes. And, and that was about the, about the only time we heard about it. Rishi Sunak doesn't seem to be going down that line. Thank goodness. I mean, the Prime Minister's questions is a lot more interesting. Um, but also, I don't think that's what Rishi Sunak wants to frame himself at. There will be, we have noticed that there is some, you know, there's still a divide between the Remainers and Brexiteers, be that culturally, be that how they vote, et cetera, et cetera. But the core issue of Brexit seems to have faded away and there are other divides in society that are separating. Um, so, yes, I, I do about it. Far, far less. It'll probably, just because it's not dominating the headlines like it used to. Um, even the right-wing newspapers like the Express or the Mail, I, I hardly see a big headline from them about Brexit or Brussels unless, say, some big legal issues going on. So uh, it's going to fade away slightly. Yeah, I think it's possibly fair to throwing in a prediction for the year after. Um, I think it's the kind of thing where if talking about it ramps up, it will be in the lead-up to the next general election. I think there's probably a chance it's still is useful in certain seats for the Conservatives to talk up where well, we were always pro-Brexit, blah, blah, blah. Um, but that's not happening this year, so not a problem. <laughs> and there I go, predicting we won't have a general election this year, so uh, we'll see how that <laughs> holds. But I, I think that's probably a safe bet uh, based on the polls, which leads us into the Conservatives. What did we think about them last year? How well did we do? Um, there's a lot in this section, so let's have a look. <laughs> okay, so first of all, let's, let's deal with the Boris question. I think it was one that you... The Boris in the was- room. Yeah. Um, was he going to stay? And I made the prediction that, yes, he would be prime minister by the end of the year, essentially on the fact that um, he had survived a lot of crises before. The Sue Gray report was delayed. Um, as we were recording the one last year, that's when all the stories were breaking out about the Christmas parties and the drinking in number 10. And I pointed out that those things weren't like necessarily Boris. So um, yeah, that we didn't. I didn't think that that scandal would bring him down at all. Um, you, on the other hand, just went for it. You said, "Yeah, sure, Boris Johnson's not going to be prime minister by the end of the year." Um, <laughs> and boy, were you right. Um, I think I think I possibly you- had that same level of swagger there. I just went, "Yeah, sure." <laughs> I was like, "You said no," and I went, "Well, we've got to make this interesting. I'll predict he's gone for something." Yeah. The, the 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 funniest thing was that I was listening to our sort of like roundup of what we'd said in 2020 or 2021. We kind of said that last the year before the year before I'd said that it's Boris Johnson's probably like one big scandal away before he's going to go. And we had the Sue Gray report and that didn't topple him. So I, I adjusted. I said, look, this guy can survive any scandal. He's he's untouchable. And of course, it, it wasn't parties that brought him down in the end, was it? It was the Chris Pincher affair that ultimately led to MPs feeling that there was something where he couldn't lead the party anymore. Uh, so yeah, I think it was. it's fascinating to see that there are lots of reasons why Boris Johnson failed as a leader and reasons why he succeeded um, to last for so long. Um, he succeeded for so long, in my opinion, because he had some sort of like charisma and election winning ability that no conservatives had. He was able to keep the polls at like a steady 40% for them. Even when he was disliked by the general public, there were still a lot of people who would always back him. Um, his big problem was party unity and how many MPs were willing to toe the line that Boris was telling them to, to say. And particularly with the Chris Pincher affair, where we saw kind of a drip drip of Downing Street changing the story about how much they knew. Oh, we didn't know anything. Oh, we knew there were a report, but there was we didn't know what it was about. 
oh, there was a report and we didn't know what it's about, but nothing's been proved. So it was okay that he was chief whip to that just all breaking down and having ministers refusing to do interviews in the morning. I think I was stunned by how quickly the fall of Boris came in the end and how I, I wasn't shocked about how long he tried to hang on where you had farcical scenes where you have an education secretary for a day and then they disappear. We had a chancellor of the exchequer for three days and it went just, um, yeah, most people in that situation would have seen the writing on the wall, but Boris Johnson was trying to appoint new people right up to the night before um, till, yeah, I think it was January the 6th, 7th, uh, yeah, 7th of July when he eventually resigned and said, yeah, I can't take this any further. So, yeah, fascinating. It didn't, uh, well, I didn't predict that, but big congratulations to you, Tom. Um, being right on that one. I'm just going to go continue the the trend in the future of just you can have a measured and sensible take that may or may not, which, which will probably be accurate most of the time, and I'll just swing it into the stands and just see what happens. <laughs> um, I think one other prediction we have in there is we said there'd be an early general election if a new leader came in and there was a bump in the polls. Now, I would argue we're correct there because a new leader came in, but there wasn't a bump in the polls, so we haven't had a general election. Um, and I guess if we're l- looking at predictions for next year, I'm happy to extend that prediction. I think there won't be a general election this year because Sunak has not had the Sunak bounce everyone's talking about. And unless something really bad happens to Labour that causes a bounce back to the Conservatives, I think it's a solid hold on to power until they time out and have to have a general election at the usual time. Yeah, it does appear like, we, hey, we're not, we didn't predict that any new Conservative leader would be in for three months until they got rid of, a, of another one. I think we do have to take a step back and say what an extraordinary year it has been for the Conservative Party, that nobody could have predicted what happened. Um, talking then well about like a polls bounce, the uh, introduction of Liz Truss into the public ecosystem to see what she could do was pretty much proved to be a disaster from, goodness, from the day after the Queen's funeral or in the days past because she did have a bit of a honeymoon period after that because essentially the the, the country was in mourning there was sort of uh, news coverage was solely dedicated it, it seemed to the death of the Queen rather than any political issues and it was in a couple of days of the funeral where Liz Truss and her then Chancellor Kwasi Kwarteng announced that mini budget that everything started to unravel and, and, and all hell broke loose so um Yes, a very interesting year for the Conservatives. Um, we might talk about the polls later, but it, it certainly hasn't been a great one for them going forward. Um, the other thing we talked about last year, and I think this was really interesting, and again, this is one where I have to congratulate you, Tom. Right. Um, we were talking about things that could unseat Boris Johnson, and I mentioned depended how the, the local elections went, because that would be proof of, you know, Boris Johnson already suffered some big by-election defeats in the year previous um, the big electoral test that he had to pass in 2022 was those by-elections. Um, and I was sort of thought back to when Theresa May was really in trouble, when the Conservatives were coming fifth in some by-elections, to like behind um, the Brexit Party, Labour, Lib Dems and the Greens. It wasn't that catastrophic for the Conservatives this time round. However, when you have a look at the the numbers, um, the Conservatives only had about 1,200 seats to defend compared to Labour's 2,300. And where Labour only gained about 33, the Conservatives lost about 236, it was in the end. Um, and that was mostly to um, the Lib Dems. Uh, had a, we'll talk about them later, but they had a really good year, I think, in 2022 as well. So yeah, a lot of predictions on the Conservatives there, what was going to go wrong, what was going to go right. Uh, I don't think anybody quite predicted that they would have <laughs> no, I mean, such a tumultuous year. No, I mean, there was a lot we couldn't predict, but yes. <laughs> 
I, I just want to add on that thing about the local elections. I think in general, it's quite easy to predict bad local election results for someone who's in power. But actually, the Conservatives have done not so bad over the course of this government. Um, or at least the last set, I think, were kind of surprisingly good for them because you would have expected them to do poorly. So this this time round, it's like, oh, finally, it feels like normality is starting to descend a bit. And I feel like possibly that's also, you know, getting rid of Boris feels a bit like that. That doesn't mean there isn't a, a fairly long fight for Labour who we'll get to when we've predicted Conservatives for next year. But um, yeah, it does. It, it shouldn't it shouldn't normally be a surprise that this happened. But I think uh, you may have been off base because of what happened in previous years with this Conservative government. So Conservatives for 2023, like I said, I don't think we're going to have a general election. We've extended that that uh, prediction. I think that's a fairly easy one to go for because they would have to be doing very well in the polls to want to jump on it. Because at the moment, as we discussed in previous episodes, their poll numbers, even though they have stabilised a tiny bit, it still looks very likely to be a, a decent majority for Labour if we were to have a general election today. Um, uh, what else? I mean... I think it's probably safe to say, uh, well, I'm going to go out and predict that I think Rishi Sunak will still be prime minister this time next year. I think, I think he's, he's, he's basically the candidate who can hold on to things. We don't have a lot of choice. I know that uh, some people were saying, oh, Boris might try and come back and go for it, but I, I don't think he's going to manage it in the current setup at all. So um, I think we're, we've got Sunak probably, unless something big happens that we're not aware of, we've got Sunak through to the general election, I would guess, which he would then lose, is my my feeling at the moment. Um, but yeah, uh, any other predictions you want to put out for the Conservatives? No, I think you're absolutely right there. There's such a lack of talent within the Conservative Party. Like, uh, Rishi Sunak is essentially the third choice candidate, isn't it? They wanted Boris Johnson. He wasn't feasible. They had an election which Liz Truss won, and that clearly didn't go well. So they've been stuck with the person who came second, apart from maybe Penny Mordaunt, question mark? Like, not really. There's nobody else there to take the reins, as it were. And yeah, the, the Conservatives' game plan now, or Rishi Sunak's game plan now, appears to be like, hope the economy gets better, hope that you that the cost of living crisis fades, if the war in Ukraine, if they get access to sort of like grain and other stuff that, you know, calms the food markets a little, then it means that, hey, maybe we'll see a reduction in the cost of living crisis and like energy. Um, if it all goes away under Rishi Sunak's rule, maybe people will forget everything else from the previous 13 years. Like the, the Conservatives have had to reinvent themselves with each prime minister many times. We are on our fifth prime minister now after Cameron May, Boris Truss, and then Sunak. And all of them have tried to say, this is my version of conservatism. This is this is the one that's really going to work. And we've seen those experiments last for a long time. We saw it last for a very short time with Liz Truss. Um, and I don't think that we can underestimate the damage that Liz Truss did to the Conservative Party's reputation in a very small time. And it does seem that Rishi Sunak is just sort of propping up some support rather than winning anybody back a lot of people seem to have made up their minds on conservative um, and that there's enough factions as well within the parliamentary conservative party that like we know from how people voted that like this is he's kind of that middle ground choice but he's you know he hasn't unified them through force of personality or something like that he's unified them as the the least worst option essentially which Correct. Correct, which is never good. If you're in that, if you're doing the least worst option, then you're never going to be in a great position going forward, are you? It's just how it is. Um, I think the other thing just to watch out is how Rishi Sunak deals with strikes and how they roll into the new year. Clearly, we've had some at the end of this year. 
they don't seem to be going away. Um, whatever comes out of the negotiations with the nurses, the nurses have come back and said that, you know, next time we might strike and there might be even more people off. We've got ambulance strikes, as of course, that the rail strikes have been going on for quite some time now. If he fails to get a handle on it and Keir Starmer is able to come up with some way of ending these strikes and resolving things, that might be another, like, big blow to Rishi Sunak how he does it. There's a yeah, public opinion. Maybe I need to do a bit more research on where public opinion is on strikes at the moment. But um, let's see, particularly for things like nurses, that's one where people say, oh, they don't strike a lot of the time. They did work through COVID. They deserve more than a, than a one-off payment. If they still feel that they're unable to get anything, then yeah, that's a real headache. Yeah, so we, we talked a bit about what Keir Starmer might be able to do in the next year. So I guess it's on to Labour. So I think we were a little worried, weren't we, about where things were going for Labour last year. I think things have ended up quite different. So uh, what did we predict for Labour last year? Yeah, um, I think we were worried for Keir because you'd had Boris Johnson in quite a few weak positions, particularly like the, the Sue Gray report, um, his accusation that he lied to Parliament, stuff like that. And still Labour weren't having the big polls breakthrough that they wanted or at lost. At least they're not, they weren't able to sustain that. They had a brief bump. And Boris had a brief fall after those initial allegations came out. And then the Conservatives sort of recover as everybody forgot about it or made up their own mind about it. Um, we also, you know, felt that, uh, well, I felt that Labour's big opportunity might be in the local elections. As we've already stated, um, that was where the Lib Dems really shone. So they didn't really make those those inroads in there. Um, and finally, we said there was sort of like no chance for Keir to be um, removed as, as leader. And that certainly hasn't happened because as it is, even though he struggled when polling against Boris Johnson in those last days where Boris Johnson was having that Chris Pincher affair and people saw him cling on, his numbers did go down and Labour got a bit of a boost from that. Keir Starmer was able to present himself as sort of like a on key aspects like trust and how much you believe somebody. Um, he was able to shine a lot better than Boris Johnson on those metrics and those certainly seem to hold true when you have something like the Pincher affair that people are going to, yeah have certain umbrages about. Where he really shone, however, was against Liz Truss, uh, although he wasn't really able to put her down in Prime Minister's questions. When her poll numbers started to slip on things like the economy, the momentum seemed to really get behind Labour this year. Uh, In particular, I remember when it was party conference season and you had Liz Truss sort of having quite a really torrid time of it over there. She was talking, you know, there were ums and ahs about whether Kwasi Kwarteng would be her chancellor by the end of the the conference if she was going to stay the course with their economic plan. She said she would, but then she went back to other things, then she went back on a few other things, and after the conference, she'd got rid of um, Kwasi Kwarteng altogether. On the flip side, you went to the Labour conference, and they felt like a government in waiting. There was that buzz that this was their moment, this is their time. Now is the time to really put forth their policy ideas and agenda. And and we saw that with ideas like um, British energy. I Was it Great British Energy? I believe that they called it um, a a national energy scheme saying, no, we'll run it a bit like EDF, we'll sell it to the public, but it will be owned by the government and this will be a way of ensuring energy security in the future. Stuff like that, big policy ideas that seem popular, yeah, they, they appear like a government in waiting and Prime and Keir Starmer himself as a prime minister in waiting. So yeah, I think it's been a, a better year for Keir than any of us predicted. Um, that might just be helped a little bit by how much the Conservatives have imploded themselves in that time but yeah he was at least able to uh, sustain that 
that pole lead might be say even though Rishi Sunak might be getting a little bit back from where they were from Liz Truss to be honest it was very difficult to get lower from where Liz Truss was um Kistama is still maintaining that lead over Sunak and seems to be at least his equal when it comes to stuff like Prime Minister's question as well yeah I mean I think <laughs> I don't have much else to add really um yeah I yeah he wasn't removed he's in a good position like what else can we say I think I, I mean I I fully I I don't want to rule out the possibility the Labour Party can do something stupid, <laughs> but uh, I think at the moment he's in a good position. We were a bit worried last year. I think, as you say, he's had a good year, and that probably puts him in good stead in the lead up to the general election. As things are at the moment, he would win a general election. So you know, when you're in that position, you're not going to suddenly change things around, are you? So uh, I think that's where we are. I think it's probably a fair prediction to put in for next year that we'll still have Keir Starmer in charge of the Labour Party. I think that would be easy to go for. Uh, I wonder how the polls will go. I, th- I think at the moment there's a clear gap, but like you say, if things like um, cost of living crisis and stuff improve and Sunak gets a few wins that he can attribute to, to his leadership, uh, then that gap could narrow. Um, but without like a clear, obvious scandal or stupid thing on the horizon, then I don't think there's much worry for Keir Starmer at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> don't know. I don't have many fun Labour. Like, there's not a big thing to think about for Labour this year. Like, there's no general election on the horizon. We've had local election. I mean, I'm sure there's always, there's always local elections every year, right? But there's nothing, it's not so big this year, is it, that we're looking forward to? There was quite a lot of local elections last year. If anything else, it might be the odd. I mean, We'll get onto those demos in a minute, but maybe there will be another by-election uh, or something. The Conservatives seem to be quite good at losing MPs <laughs> um, for various reasons. So, you know, the Conservatives have the most MPs to lose. And I, the chance of there being a Conservative scandal that ousts someone, uh, thus opening up a by-election, is probably fairly high based on the last year. So, um, yeah, I mean, I guess if there's a by-election and it's in like a red wall seat or something like that, I would expect to go to Labour. And then if not, might expect it to swing to the Lib Dems, but I guess that's a good segue into the Lib Dems, unless you have any other predictions you want to put down. No, no, the prediction is just that it's probably a an important year for Keir Starmer. They, they appear like a government in waiting. Like you say, you don't want a big gaffe from that government in waiting, do you? It's it's his to lose now, it feels like it, rather than he's got to overcome Boris Johnson and win it. Everything's set up for them. Just don't mess it up. And as as you know, people people like myself are always persuaded to on the left. We've we've had a few situations like this, you know, like our referendum. You know, we had a referendum on Brexit. We had a referendum on first past the post. All the polling suggested that yeah, that would go our way. And of course, we know how those turned out in the end. Um, so you never want to sort of go in there knowing what the public's going to do, or assuming what the general public's going to do in a year's time. A lot change and been, been hurt before so we'll see what happens in the future so as i said on into the lib dems um not really a government in waiting or anything like that so i guess there's a bit less to talk about the lib dems um uh it looks like we only have two predictions uh there but i think they might have both been correct so rob what are our predictions for the lib dem so the year previous i'd suggested that the lib dems didn't really have much going for them now brexit was fading away they've mainly been a, like a remainer party in the one clear source of like we will rejoin the EU. That was our rallying call. Um, and now Brexit become less of an issue. I felt that they might struggle to find their own USP. However, in the last year or so, their USP appears to be, we are not the Conservatives and we're not Labour. And that appeals to a lot of people, particularly in those rural constituencies. So uh, we'd seen them having a lot of success in by-elections the year before, taking historic um, 
conservative seats away from uh, the Tories for the first time in like 50 or 60 years. They continued that trend again um, in 2022, particularly seeing lots of success in the local elections and being able to take rural conservative councils out of conservative control and back under Lib Dem control. Uh, The one that sticks in my mind the most because it's local to me in Somerset, that was one that had been conservative owned for a lot of time. And a lot of people were expecting the conservatives to win that quite comfortably. I don't think it was on uh, one of their hit lists. Uh, However, um, the Lib Dems were able to take it quite convincingly in the end. So uh, yeah, really good for year for the Lib Dems. It will be really interesting to see if they can sustain that type of success with a leader like Rishi Sunak in place. Uh, Personally, I think one of the reasons that Lib Dems were able to convince so many Conservative voters to switch and swing over to them was because that Boris Johnson had a particularly sort of hard Brexit right-wing social agenda, and that made some people uncomfortable. They They were fine with some of the Conservative economics, just not so much with their social agenda. Rishi Sunak might soften a bit on that, or at least he appears to have softened a little bit in comparison to how Boris Johnson and Liz Truss, though, goes, although that is to be, remains to be seen on a couple of key issues. I think their uh, possible overturning or nullification of like the, the gender recognition bill in Scotland, the way Rishi Sunak's tackled that is very much in the vein of what uh, Boris Johnson or Liz Truss would have done on the matter. He doesn't seem to be um, a compassionate conservative in in that sense. But yeah, I think for the Lib Dems, looking back and looking forward, they've got to see where they can consolidate on the success. Um, If there's a general election, what seats are they going to target? Are places like the South West, for example, where they've traditionally had conservative support and those have been conservative Lib Dem marginals, that's where they'll be looking to uh, yeah, try and get more seats in Parliament and again establish themselves as a force in British politics. I think it's available to them now. I, I, I really do. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm not saying that they're going to have sort of like a Nick Clegg bounce or people feel that there could be a, another PM in there like it was back in 2010. Um, but certainly they'll be cause a lot of con- problems for uh, Conservatives in that blue. And uh... I think our other prediction was that they would continue to be cringe, uh, which, <laughs> as you'd mentioned, a blue wall is a perfect chance to remember Ed Davey with a small orange mallet knocking down a blue wall symbolically. Um, the Lib Dems have always been quite good at that kind of silly publicity stunt because, you know, I guess they've got the time when they're not in power. Um, so, um, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I don't have much to add there. I think, uh, you know, if you were to describe the three parties, we know that Labour's fairly left. Uh, although not as left as it could be if it was another country that's not the UK that's already right, fairly right as a country. Conservatives are right. And then the kind of the Lib Dem USP, as you say, is not being either of them, but they have the kind of fiscal conservatism of the conservatives while being probably more progressive in a lot of ways than uh, the Labour on uh, social issues. So they can kind of find a place for people. Um, and it's probably why they did so well with students back in the day before uh, all the issues with the uh, the raise in tuition fees was that they could sit there and say, well, look, we're going to look after money well, but also, you know, pro-LGBT rights, etc., without some of the baggage that Labour has in those areas where Labour kind of hasn't pulled through in the way people would expect. I think we can probably predict again, they're going to continue to be grinned. That's the Lib Dems all over. Um, I think... Like I said earlier, if there are by-elections for whatever reason, I feel if they're in red wall seats, they might switch back to Labour because those are the kind of seats where people are like, let's give the Conservatives a try. Oh, I don't like this. Cost of living crisis, etc. You can see those flipping back quite easily. But as you say, in rural areas that aren't red wall seats, weren't traditionally red wall seats, I think you will see people because they go, look, you know, I'm not liking what the Conservatives are doing. 
here's a party that's talking my language financially. And, you know, as long as you're not, you know, supremely homophobic or something, then you're probably going to go, oh, well, they sound kind of kind of what I want. And they're not not conservative. So, yeah, I think that's probably fair to predict. Um, don't have much else. I mean, Ed Davies going to be leader for, for a while, I guess, because, you know, he hasn't had a he's doing well at elections. So unless he does really poorly at the general election, that's on the horizon, then he'll be fine. And that's not this year. So Ed Davey will still be there. Uh, anything else, Lib Debbie, we want to try and predict? No, I think I'm happy to move on to our next prediction. It's okay. Scotland. Uh, well, I don't think we predicted much, did we? Um, what, what did we predict for Scotland last year? That was more a reflection on the previous year. I'd said that like Scotland's going to break it big. The Lib Dems are nothing. The SNP are going to be the ones to look out for. Um, instead, not much has happened with the SNP. They have continued to do what they do best. Um, the one sort of like prediction that we had was that they would call for an independence referendum and the Conservatives would reject it. But I might as well be predicting where bears do their business and in which forestry establishment they're going to do. That is always going to happen. Those as the two core, you know, tenets of those parties is that one will ask for independence and the other will say, no, you're part of the union. You can't do that. So, um, yeah, there hasn't been, uh, looking back on it, or at least from our point of view or where it's hit the headlines, Scotland hasn't really hit the headlines as much or been different to the UK. I think particularly in those um, COVID years where we saw uh, the SNP taking a slightly different policy on lockdowns and, you know, how they were managing their healthcare system. It was quite interesting to see the difference and maybe some of the uh, the follies in our system. And even when you compared it to something like exam grading back in the time, um, remember we had that huge kerfuffle over like uh, how exams were graded during COVID and the predicted results, for example. Scotland also had those crises, but learned from it and, and went forward. But now things are turning more back to, to normal and we're seeing more unified government on some issues. Um, Scotland doesn't really feature in the conversation that much. As I mentioned earlier, um, when I was talking about Rishi Sunak's sort of cultural ideology, um, one big piece of news, I think, to come out of Scotland is that gender recognition bill. That's very progressive. And I think it's excellent that Scotland has the power to vote on issues like that. And it's a good I think it's a good test for the UK to say, hey, look, you can have these powers and nothing like <laughs> for me, it's something like, you know, you have those gay marriage bills. It's like some people predict fire and brimstone and all hell break loose. It's like, no, nothing will happen other than people will generally be happier and be able to go about their day. Um, I hoped that would be what we'd learn from it. Although the UK government, the uh, the one run by Rishi Sunak, seems to be digging its heels in. So, uh, yeah, something to look out for in, in January, the new year, to see how that one progresses. Um, but for Scotland as a whole, we've got no big elections coming up this year. To my knowledge, we've got no big power shifts. Um, nothing really should change until um, the actual general election. And then it will be a test to see how the SNP can, they can either keep control of Scotland or it will be like a Lib Dem resurgence. That's where the Lib Dems used to get a lot of traction. Or will it be Labour who would love to get some more seats in Scotland because Again, that will increase their chance of having a very workable uh, majority in the House of Commons. Yeah, I think that's um, quite a good summary of what's happened in Scotland. I do think the potential legal fallout of this stuff going on with gender recognition could be interesting because uh, it was, I think it was fairly hotly contested within Scotland, but it got through, um, which people weren't necessarily expecting. The UK government has pushed back on it. Interesting to see where that comes up with devolution because I think uh, Nicola Sturgeon last year put through a, an attempt for another referendum, as you say, and it went to a legal challenge and it got to the Supreme Court and they said, no, it's not within your powers to do this this way. So now SNP are kind of saying, instead of their election being a mandate for a second uh, referendum, it's more of like a kind of a thumbs up. Um, 
So there's some interesting stuff there going on about the language. Um, but then, yeah, you have like it could be that the devolution issues are thrown wide open by some kind of legal challenge uh, on either side around this gender recognition certificate, um, which also is kind of weird, like an aside, but the UK being like, oh, we're not going to recognize these from this weird from this list of countries and might not recognize one from part of the union itself is like a very weird situation to be in. It's like saying, it's similar to saying, oh, we can't recognize marriages from these countries. Like you'd think we'd got past those kind of things, everyone, uh, when we, you know, brought in marriage equality and stuff like that. You'd think like it's the same kind of set of principles. If you were to logically apply them, you'd go, well, we we should just accept all of these. Um, But yeah, uh, unfortunately that is ongoing. Um, Maybe I think we could touch on, uh, I'm sure there will be a story based on it coming out soon like you know when we get the results of all these legal challenges and stuff but yeah um yeah i guess i also don't have much to add to the predictions for scotland i think uh, you know the conservatives aren't doing well in scotland not surprising do i think labor will get more seats i mean i think i think it's kind of pretty drawn up right unless unless is scotland also affected by the boundary change that's coming in um i'm not sure i'd have to do some research i'd have to check. i mean because I- if, if they are affected by that then maybe that could change things but i feel like scotland is kind of quite set you know they maybe gain or lose an smp MP every year, uh, every time they have a general election, or you know, but like it feels like they're quite set in stone at the moment, and I don't know if that's going to move unless the SNP have had a few scandals, but they seem to have come out of it the other side of it okay. Admittedly, we're not in Scotland, so we don't quite have our finger on the pulse of that, but I think you know, in general, it hasn't really changed the makeup of things, even though they have had a few little scandals over the last year. So I guess yeah, not much to predict. Final topic uh, into the US of A. Um, well, they've just had some elections, so we predicted stuff about that. Uh, where where did we fall? Yeah, so we were thinking that in general it was going to be quite a tough year for Joe Biden. Historically, always with the uh, the party that is in power um, and when they controlled all three chambers for the past two years, so that's the presidency, the Senate and Congress, usually the US populace likes to hit back in some way and limit that power. We thought particularly where Biden was polling at around about 45%, which was comparable to where Trump was at the same time in his midterms, that there seemed to be like a a floor of about 45% for Biden. Um, People on the Trump side or Republican side weren't necessarily coming across to Biden and being convinced of him. It was more the fact that he wasn't Trump this time that helped to win. And we thought maybe with the state of the economy being what it was, they would suffer quite heavy losses in the midterm election. As it was, um, again, we were we were proved wrong on this one. I don't think any of us really saw well the other big news that went down in the USA last year, which was Roe v. Wade being repealed by the Supreme Court, which I do think had a big impact on the way that uh, voters, particularly female voters of a certain persuasion, went, oh, my vote like matters in a way. And if these things are going to be decided not in the Supreme Court, but in my local legislatures, I want to make sure that I have congressmen and senators in my state who believe that they can like protect abortion rights. Uh, and we saw a move, particularly from Democrats, that they were funding more right-wing, more Trumpian candidates to get through to the final stages of those like Republican primaries to get the more extreme part candidates in because they felt they would have a better chance in congressional and Senate elections against the ones that are more right-wing rather than somebody who's more moderate. And it does seem to have, have backfired. The Trump-backed candidates, uh, for most of their part, failed to you know either unseat or get re-elected um, during the midterm elections. The only success the Republicans really had in the end was a very small majority um, in the Congress. Even that seems to have backfired for them with uh, a display of party 
disunity, particularly amongst about a bunch of about 15 or 16 of those on the extreme right of the party who made it a real issue to get a, a speaker elected. It took, what, 15, 16 times in the end to um, pass the vote for speaker that was just simply unheard of before now. So yeah, we predicted quite a rough year for the Democrats. And actually, they've probably come out of 2022 thinking, boy, that could be a lot worse. They've got work to do if they're going to win in 2024, but they do seem to be able to have found a strategy that at least stems, you know, that, that, that makes them a makes them electable in the eyes of the, the general public for a little while. And I think there's also some parallels with Brexit as well, where like for a long time, Republicans were like, we're going to get rid of abortion laws. And then everyone kind of never really believed it would happen. And it was similar to kind of in the run up to Brexit, people, are, oh, you know, we should leave the EU, the EU bad kind of thing. And then like, oh, 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 accidentally we've done this thing. Um, and that's how I think some people felt about it. Um, and that means that now we're in a kind of pushback phase, which has been, as you say, an unexpected boon for the Democrats. I'm slightly worried about how their strategy of putting forwards kind of worse candidates who would then lose, like, because now they've used that strategy, the Republicans can replicate it. And it's like, it feels like in US politics, there's often like someone works out a trick for getting more votes, and then suddenly everyone's doing it, and it's bad for everyone. So slightly concerned about where that goes, although I don't have a specific prediction tied to it, because there's nothing, there's not a big election this year. Um, I think we did say, uh, if the midterms went badly for Biden, he might not run. Um, interesting that they went well because now, as a story we haven't had a chance to touch on, touch on, and maybe that'll be one of our first episodes into the new year. But now there's this issue with some secret documents that he had in his garage next to his Corvette, and that's um, interesting because it kind of is a parallel with Trump holding on to documents, although it's not the same. But you can see how Republicans will spin it as the same thing, like oh they're coming, out, and now there's a special counsel investigation. So one would have expected Biden probably to announce his candidacy fairly soon um, to run the next uh their next election and now maybe it's been put on the back burner while this gets dealt with so it's kind of it's interesting where that's going do i think he will announce he's running for president yes <laughs> like i'll still have to go through the democratic primary right but i think you know if he says he's going for it he's going to win it so i think that's the, the situation they're in um uh and then yeah are there any other predictions we have i guess People thought Trump was going to announce he was going to run, and then he did his whole stupid NFT thing. So do you think Trump's going to go go and run for it, or is he in too much hot water to, to go for a run? I think the parallels between Trump and Johnson have been made plenty of times, but I'm, I'm happy to make them again. Donald Trump is going to run whatever, okay? Whatever happens, he thinks he's the right man for the job, so of course he's going to throw his hat into the ring. Um, the real question is, is can he win? And does he have the support of people? And would it be wise for him to win? In my in my suggestion, I think no. I think for the Republican Party, it would be bad if he won, just because he is, again, implemented in so many scandals. He's still got the January 6th investigation. He's still got these documents. He's still got his last time as president, where, reminder, he lost the last presidential election before he Tried, before his supporters tried to storm um, the not the White House but the Capitol building, like there's an awful lot to say that Boris Johnson. Sorry, <laughs> start again. There's an awful lot to say that Donald Trump shouldn't run for president again. And I do feel that uh, yeah, if uh, DeSantis was to run instead and win that election, the Republicans would have a far better chance of winning the presidential election against Biden than if they did Trump again. Um, but yes, my my bold prediction is that uh, Trump will not see the writing on the wall and will run again. And then it's just a question of, will those old supporters get him through? Are there enough hardliners within the Republican Party itself that will always vote for Trump, that will get him through that um, internal contest? Um, and then will he see his hubris if he goes to a, gen if he goes to a presidential election? I'm not sure. Yeah, it makes, 
the very interesting times in US politics. It's, uh, things ha- certainly haven't got any easier. He, he does like to no. remind us that he's still around. Yeah, and I think, I think you're probably right that he'll go for it because that's the kind of person he is. <laughs> Um, I, I think some people were saying maybe the fallout from the NFT stuff would cause him to not run, but I think he would run anyway because also he seems to think if he gets in that he won't, you know, all his legal issues will go away. And even though I think it's been shown that that's not the case, um, you know, he might run on the risk of like getting in and being able to say, oh, I pardon myself again or something like that. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I think it's probably in his game plan. Um, any other kind of left field things you want for you? I mean, there must be, there's going to be people running. So, presumably if biden throws his hat in the ring then kamala harris has to go for a second time as vp right she's not gonna go uh, go against him in that primary if 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 like you know if he he's definitely if he's definitely standing presumably she's gonna say i'm gonna be vp a second time oh yes certainly i don't see that they're suddenly being her with i don't know cashing in the money in the bank contract and you know top 10 anime betrayals her suddenly doing something it would have to be if she was to run it would only be because biden himself said i don't think it's right for me to run but if you supported me, Kamala's going to run in my in, in my place. The only way I see her running. Apart from that, I don't. Might be my lack of knowledge on the subject at the moment, but I don't see where the other big. I don't see the other person in the Democratic Party who's making a name for themselves who would be ready for the presidency right now, or 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 has that kind of of sway. There doesn't seem to be an Obama coming up through the ranks. Somebody who has that great charisma that says, "Yes, I am the person to." lead forward a, a new vision of new for this democratic party i know a lot of people might point towards cortez but i just don't think that she's she might be a little bit too divisive she she's in almost in the bernie sanders camp for me and again if bernie sanders runs bernie sanders always runs that's what he used to do it was almost like um in the labor party where one of diane abbott um mcdonnell or jeremy corbyn would run in the leadership election as a far left candidate that's just what they they did and it just so happened one year that oh my goodness yes um, there seems to be this big swell behind us. I think Sanders had his time. Um, he's also, there's that question of age over him, which means that I don't think he'd be the most dynamic candidate. And the fact that he's lost two on the trot, quite high profile as well. Um, I don't think a third run would do any good for, for Sanders, or if he won, it would certainly be at the, the detriment for the, the Democrat Party. Um, what I think you'll see um, in the coming sort of two years of politics in the US is that the Democrats will try and present themselves as the party that has, they've got themselves together, they know who they are, they're united, they're presenting a united front. Because have a look at what's just gone on in Congress right now and how difficult it was for Republicans to elect a senator when they have a majority, something, sorry, to to elect the speaker when they have a majority, something that should be just won and done in one vote. The fact that they lack that party unity that they've seem to be a party pulling themselves apart. Will your average American look at that party and say, is that a party we want ruling us? Somebody who can't even sort out problems between themselves? Or do we want the stability of of the Democratic Party? I think the Democrats are going to be really careful to be goody two-shoes and say, yeah, provide a united front to try and make sure that they appear like an electable party a couple of years time i think that's probably probably correct uh they've got to but it's it's much less cut and dry i feel than like labor versus conservative over here now where it's like i feel the general feeling of the populace is that we don't want the conservatives in power anymore and we're just waiting for that election to drop whereas in the u.s it is much closer um and it doesn't help biden these things coming out now that can't Republicans can easily draw parallels to Trump with and be like, oh, well, he said he was goody two-shoes. Look, he isn't. Um, So, yeah, I think it's just going to be a lot closer and it'll be interesting, I guess, with a kind of lame duck speaker 
in the house uh, what happens, but it's also not unusual for the you know the the second half of a presidential term for a lot less to get done, especially given at the start Biden didn't have that strong of a majority. Um, now now he doesn't have that majority across the two houses, so we will see a lot less legislation, I guess, coming out uh, under Biden. And I imagine that means there'll be more executive orders because that's been the name of the game since Obama was in, at least. Um, and yeah, it's going to be tough for them <laughs> over the next two years. Oh, I don't think there's anything else we normally deal with on predictions. We've we've mentioned the polls, so we don't have to go into them again. Um, yeah, I guess I guess those are our predictions. We did pretty well on our predictions for 2022, except for a few curveballs, mostly from the Conservative Party. Um, and then those are our predictions for 2023. So I guess we'll see you this time next year for our annual review of our predictions. And hopefully we'll see you shortly with our kind of more normal episode uh, in a few weeks. Uh, once, you know, the kind of slow news cycle around Christmas kind of picks up a pace. I'm sure there'll be plenty to talk about in a week or two. There always is. Um, uh, you can find us on all our normal social places. So you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash TTSS, where you can throw a dollar our way to get access to our kind of pre-show ramble where we talk about things this week we spoke about. Uh, all the legal issues going on with the OGL for D&D um, and about that I've moved into a house. So, you know, a bit of life updates and kind of an interesting topic uh, around gaming that people may be interested in. Um, there's Facebook where you can find us as Unparliamentary Language. You can find us on Instagram and uh, Twitter at Unparl Podcast. Um, you can find us on uh, Reddit at forward slash r forward slash Unparliamentary. And of course, if you want to go direct to the source, comment on an episode, you can go to parliamentary.observer. A domain name I still can't believe they let us have. Um, and there's nothing else left for me to say other than uh, it's good night from me. And it's good night from him. Bye. Bye. Bye bye. Bye. Bye 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 bye. Ooh, bye, a little bye. musical bye there. Join Mike and Tom for a nerdy conversation with a multitude of guests on the Hat of Many Things. Say hi, guys. Hi, guys. Hello. I'm Mark, a Librarian and professional wrestling ring announcer. Uh, cast League of Legends. Isadoros Phil Brucato, best known for my work with uh, White Wolf and uh, Onyx Path Publishing on the World of Darkness. Uh, hi, I'm Jason Carl. I'm uh, the producer of V5 at uh, White Wolf. Yeah, uh, my name is uh, Johanna Pettersson, I'm a Finnish game, game designer. Mm-hmm.